during worship, I just felt like the Lord was giving me this vision of, you know, the reality that this is what heaven is going to be like, right? I mean, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and in heaven we are going to be before the throne of God, worshiping Him. And it's just going to be the, the most beautiful thing to do that together, to, to be with one another. And it's like, wow, you know, we've walked this journey through life together, and now we're here, and we've, we've reached the promised land that, that God has, has given us and we get to worship Him together. And I just think about the fact that we'll be up there worshiping Him in, in perfection. Right? All the diseases, all the illness, all the, all the struggles, all the, the heartaches will be gone. So like the Lord gave me a picture of that this morning, a reminder of that this morning. It's just beautiful. So Let's pray. I just want to pray with you. Father, Father, I praise you for the gathering of your saints. Lord, it's glorious to be together with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, lifting your name on high. Lord, as we, we prayed before service today, these songs that we're singing, they're so much more than just lyrics. They're these beautiful truths about who you are that remind us that you are the God who is worthy of all praise. That you are infinitely lifted up and, and worthy of our worship. And Lord, I, I just thank you that we get to come together freely in the freedom that you have given us through Jesus Christ to, to glorify your name. We come here every single week with a singular focus to, to lift your name on high, to make you famous, to, to allow your Holy Spirit to, to work in our hearts, to, to build us up that we can go from this place and be your salt and your light. And so, Father, I ask that as we approach your word today, that you would do your work in us through the power of your spirit. Lord, we praise you because you are worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Kate read for us uh, Exodus 15. And one of, the, one of the realities of when you read uh, the book of Exodus is that you are reading the history of Israel, the history of God's people. Yet, in the history of Israel, we also see the, the story of salvation in Jesus Christ and the story of Jesus' church. The parallels between the experience of God's people, Israel, and Jesus' church are unmistakable. As Israel was delivered from bondage in Egypt, we are delivered from the bondage of our sin. As Israel was saved from the judgment of God by the Passover lamb, we are saved from the judgment of God by Jesus, the Lamb of God. As the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea and God defeated their Egyptian captors, so Jesus went through the deep waters of death and rose again to defeat the power of death for his people. As Israel roamed the wilderness on the way to the promised land of Canaan, so too do followers of Jesus have a long pilgrimage in the wilderness until the day that we enter into our promised land. 
Paul writes of the clear connection between Exodus and the life of Jesus' church in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So when we read Exodus, we should have in mind this connection between it and our experience as Jesus' church to help us correctly exposit what we are reading and understand its context and relevance for our lives. And so with that in mind, we're in week three of our series this week called The Names of God and Why They Matter, in which we've been looking at the sections of Scripture where the first instance of a name of God is used. In order for us to learn what is revealed about God's character from that name and why is it significant to us as his people. And so as Kate read the story in Exodus 15 of the bitter water which God made sweet, in this story it is the first time that God reveals himself as Jehovah Rapha. It is he himself who declares, not not somebody else like in the other stories that we've looked at, it's God who declares of himself, I am the Lord your healer, in verse 26. And this story takes place following the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, when God supernaturally rescues Israel from the hands of the Egyptians by driving the sea back and dividing the water so that the Israelites could pass through the water on dry land, and then subsequently causing the divided water to come down upon the Egyptians and throwing them all into the midst of the sea so that there was none left alive who were pursuing the Israelites. I want to read verse 30 and 31 of chapter 14 of Exodus so that we know the effect that God's supernatural work at the Red Sea had on his people. So we have some context as we look at chapter 15 this morning. So this is the people's response when God parts the Red Sea and saves them from the Egyptians. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And in his servant, Moses. And so God's actions at the Red Sea brought the people to fear him and to believe in him. They placed their trust in the Lord after seeing his miraculous power. And the Israelites celebrated the deliverance of the Lord that he he brought to them through or from their enemies uh, in in a song known as the Song of Moses, which you can find recorded in the first part of Genesis 15, right before the story we're looking at today. In this Song of Moses, the people praised the Lord for his strength. They praised the Lord for his glorious triumph over the enemy. They celebrated that there is no God like him, that he is able to do awesome and glorious deeds and wonders. They sing of their love for him and his love for them, his guidance and the confident expectation that they have that he will bring them to his holy mountain or his sanctuary. So this is what we see leading up to our story in Genesis 15. And I, I share this background with you because it's, it's helpful to know what was the state of mind of the Israelites as these events were unfolding that we're looking at this morning. And so let's begin with verse 22 to 23. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. 
When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So verse, verse 22 begins by telling us that Moses makes God peop, God's people set out from the Red Sea. Moses, okay, it's, it's, it's time to go. Let's go. We've got a journey in front of us. And the way that this is written kind of implies that there was maybe some reluctance amongst God's people to, to go from uh, the Red Sea area into the journey that they had uh, in front of them. And I'm just kind of wondering if it was because the people were enjoying this mountaintop moment from God, right? Like he had just rid them of their enemies. Like, Moses, can we just not sit here and enjoy this for a little while, this, this mountaintop moment before we have to go into the wilderness? Right? Because we as human beings, we, we love the mountaintops, right? Like, like if we had the choice, like, God, I'd just be on a mountaintop all the time. Why, why would we ever come down from that? We'd love to rest in those sweet moments, those victories that the Lord brings us. But Moses knows that there is a journey in front of them. And so he, he makes them set out on that journey because, because we have to keep in mind that while it is God's grace that we have these, these mountaintop moments in our life that are just spectacular where we see the victories of God that he brings for us. It is also God's grace that we, we go into the wilderness, right? that he leads us into wilderness moments. It's God's grace that he doesn't let us just sit there and and revel in those mountaintop moments longer than what is actually good for us. Because we know, as fallen and broken people, that when things are good, when things are easy, we become lazy, don't we? We become complacent very quickly. When we're comfortable, we have a, a tendency to lose sight of the marching orders that we have been given by God. And one of the realities of our life in Christ is is we are not refined by those mountaintop moments. We are refined as pilgrims and exiles in the wilderness. This is where God does the majority of his work in the lives of his people. And so following the mountaintop moment of the Red Sea, the people are sent into the wilderness. And they enter the wilderness of Shur, which is just west of Egypt. And it's actually the same place that we looked at a couple weeks ago that Hagar was found by the angel of the Lord when she was fleeing from Sarai. And, and the people traveled three days in the wilderness, wilderness of Shur. And in those three days, they didn't come across any water. And so if you're the Israelites, after this incredible mountaintop moment of what God did at the Red Sea, the reality of what lays before you hits you pretty hard. It hits you pretty quickly as they're faced with a legitimate and serious need for water after not finding it for three days. Now, three, three days without water is, by any measurement, a concerning amount of time. Right? Like the, the exact number of days someone can go without water kind of varies depending on that person and the environment that they find themselves in. But it is a matter of days that you can survive without water. It's, it's not weeks And in the Israelite circumstance, it's likely that they would have been on the low end of that timeline because they were traveling. They were expending energy. And not only that, but they were traveling in a desert wilderness. They were probably sweating. And so the need for water was significant. It was a significant concern they faced. Add on to the fact that, that how much water they needed would have been a significant concern. 
You know, estimates of the number of Israelites that left Egypt are kind of all over the place. But on the low end, it's tens of thousands. On the high end, it's up over two million. Like that's, that's, a, that's a big range. But regardless of, of where it actually landed, even if it's on the low end, the conservative end of tens of thousands of people, that's a significant water source that you need to find in a desert. Right? So they're, they're a little bit concerned with the fact that they haven't found any. And so you can imagine their disappointment when the people arrive at Mara and they see this water source and they can't drink it because it's bitter. So now if you're the Israelites, you're maybe starting to panic a little bit. It's the first place that they have come across in three days that had water and, and then they can't drink it. Like, what if it takes another three days to come across water, to find another water source? A lot of them probably aren't going to make it that long. They were likely feeling desperate at this place. And so in their desperation, what should they do? They should have done the same thing that we should do when we find ourselves in similar situations. Cry out to God. Lord, you you see what I'm faced with. You see what we need, God. Please. Please. Provide it for us. We're desperate here. And remember, just three days before this, the Lord saved his people from the Egyptians in a miraculous way. He literally divided the waters of the Red Sea so they could walk through and it caused them to collapse on his People And the people praised him just three days ago of the absolute confidence they had of him. They sang about his glorious deeds and his wonders, his love for them. They sang about his faithfulness to bring them into his mountain, his place of of sanctuary. The people worshipped him, making confident assertions about his faithfulness. And so naturally, after what they experienced and seen at the Red Sea, and after they had praised him for all of these things that are true about him, they cried out to God, right? Like that's what the next verse says, is it not? No. Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? We are a forgetful people, aren't we? Like, we are the Israelites. They are us. And it's almost comical if it, if it didn't hit so close to home. Like, I, I, was, just, I was just picturing, like, a, a couple of guys walking. You know, they'd be talking, like, wow, did you see what God, oh, I know, the, the walls of water and, like, the entire army of the Egyptians just destroyed in the water as we walked through it. God's so amazing. Hey, guys, this water's bitter. We're doomed! Really? How forgetful are we? Now, in the people going to Moses, it wasn't unreasonable that the people went to Moses. He was God's prophet. He was the one acting as mediator between God and his people. And so the fact that people addressed Moses wasn't the problem. It's the attitude of the people that's the problem. They grumble against Moses. And so their situation is his fault. And they, they complain to him, what, what shall we drink? They're basically saying to Moses, look what you've done, Moses. Look what you've brought us to. As they do so many other times in the wilderness that we read about. Well, this is your fault, Moses. 
They had a legitimate need. But instead of addressing it properly by crying out to the Lord or even asking Moses to cry out to the Lord on their behalf, they became bitter just like the water. And in their bitterness, they looked for someone to blame for their plight. It's Moses' fault. Well, let's just back up a little bit. Because it wasn't Moses' fault. If you have your Bibles, turn back just a couple of pages to Exodus 13, verse 21 to 22. What does it say there? And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Interesting. So, who led the people to Marah? Who brought them to this place of bitter water? It wasn't Moses. It was God. And the evidence of that was right above the people's heads. They just needed to look up and see the cloud was still there. God led them to where the water was bitter. It was his plan. Why? Because it was part of his plan to heal his people. In response to the people grumbling against him, Moses seeks the Lord for help. Exodus 15, 25. And he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Moses' one prayer to God accomplished more than the grumblings of all of his people. That's something that we need to be reminded of. Moses' one prayer, one prayer, he just spoke, God, God, help me, accomplished more than tens of thousands or millions of people grumbling to God. There is such a lesson in there for us that we are really slow to learn uh, in our Christian walk. And that's the absolute ineffectiveness of our grumbling. That grumbling is not only a waste of breath. It not only breeds more bitterness. It will never accomplish what we want it to accomplish. It will never accomplish what we need And not only that, it is dishonoring to the Lord. Yet unlike the Israelites, we grumble so easily. And and, and I fear that we are far too submissive of the complaints that leave our lips. Our complaining seems small and harmless to us, but it is the overflow of wickedness in our hearts. We should see it as a serious problem. That it is in our lives. When we consider that the exact opposite of bitterness and complaining are the fruits that should be growing in us as followers of Jesus. Joy, peace, patience, self-control. Grumbling is of the flesh. It is not of the spirit. It is sinful. And while all grumbling comes from discontentment, it ultimately finds its roots for the Christian in unbelief. We grumble 
as a response to our circumstances. But the root of our grumbling is not our circumstances. It is a heart issue that we need to be healed of. One that says God cannot be trusted. John Piper, he says this, Grumbling is an evidence of little faith in the gracious providence of God in all the affairs of our lives. And little faith is a dishonor to him. It belittles his sovereignty and wisdom and goodness. Unlike the people, Moses doesn't grumble. He cries out to God. And shockingly, God responds with help. No, I'm being facetious. It's not shocking. But it is, sometimes it is for us. Like, wait, God responded? I prayed, I cried out for help, and he did something. That shouldn't be shocking to God's people. But for some reason, it is, which is why we choose grumbling instead. But it shouldn't be shocking that God responds to the prayers of his people. God responds to Moses. He shows him a log that was right near him, which Moses grabs and he throws into the water to make it sweet. Now, there is some debate among commentators about what kind of log this was. There are questions about whether it was from a tree that they had some sort of known remedy which could have healed the water. Okay, but, but I'll tell you what I think. I think all of that debate is useless because it was a miracle. It was simply a miracle. I, I don't know why we try to rationalize things sometimes. Like, what kind of special bark was this? It was the Lord's supernatural work. He just split the waters of the Red Sea. Why try to explain that away? He just caused the ten plagues in Egypt. He can make bitter water become sweet. It's just one example amongst others where God, for whatever reason, decides to use natural elements that have no special properties to heal as part of his supernatural deeds. That he could heal without them, but for some reason, he chooses to include them. And I'm not saying there's a parallel here, because this is not incredible exegesis happening here, but, but it reminds me of how God uses his people. Does it not? He will do supernatural things through his people. He will heal, he will prophesy, there will be tongues and interpretation. It's not that we have any special properties in and of ourselves to do such things. It's holy God working his power through natural people and authority through us. In 2 Kings 4, we, we see that Elisha purifies a deadly stew with flour. Try it. See if it works. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man by spitting on the dirt and making mud. Why? Mud can't heal blindness, flour cannot make a deadly stew pure, and a log can't fix bitter water. These are supernatural acts of God. He was once again showing his people his awesome power, in this case, to heal, to purify. So let's read the last three verses together, and we'll focus on what this story teaches us about God. After purifying the water, it says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. 
So this is the story in which God reveals himself first as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals us. And and I'm wondering if some of you uh, are, are sitting there going, okay, but what does this story have to do with healing? Because at first glance, it seems to have more to do with provision because of the need of water that is met by God. And personally, I read through this story several times. I think I meditate on this story more than I normally do for my sermons because it wasn't completely clear. And part of the reason why it's not completely clear for us is because our contemporary Christian view of healing is actually very narrow. Like I, I am confident that when all of us think of healing, we think about physical healing of our bodies from a sickness or ailment. Right? But the revelation of God as Jehovah Rapha is more complex than merely referring to physical healing. Our God, Jehovah Rapha, is, in, is revealed in this story. And, and the name Rapha itself is, is more than just physical healing. It means more than that. Though he certainly is a God who heals physically. Let's look at the name briefly and then the, again the story. Rapha means to heal, to mend, to repair. And it can be used to describe the work of a physician in physical healing, but it also can be used to refer to the healing of hearts, to the healing of distresses. Sometimes it's used in reference to the healing of an entire nation or group of people. It can be used in individual cases, referring to someone being made whole. At times, its usage in Scripture involves healing through forgiveness. This is the kind of healer our God is. That's why Psalm 103.3 says, He who forgives all our iniquity, who heals all our diseases. He's not just talking about physical disease. He's talking about all of our diseases. He heals our diseases. Physical, emotional, moral, spiritual. He is the God who heals all of our ailments. And so I want to leave you with four truths about God And his healing from this story. First, he is the Lord who heals our physical bodies. God demonstrated his healing power to the Israelites by curing the bitter waters at Marah. This was a a physically degraded stream that he restored in a moment by supernatural means. And after this, when when he gave them the statute to test them, he pointed to his, his power over physical disease specifically by saying, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. God heals physical diseases. He is over physical diseases. God lets them know he is all powerful over sickness and disease. The truth is confirmed and revealed to a greater degree in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 23. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He is the Lord who heals our physical bodies. Second, he is the Lord who heals our souls. You see, physical blessing, a physical blessing of healing is a wonderful gift from the Lord. But it points to a deeper reality. 
and a greater need that the Lord heals all of our diseases, physical, emotional, moral, and spiritual, and the worst of which and the cause of all of the rest is sin. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, sin has plagued the hearts of human beings. It is the most devastating disease that we face. 100% of people are infected with it. And 100% of people will die with it unless they get the cure. I said earlier, it was God who led the people to the bitter water of Mara because it was part of his plan to heal them. What was he doing? This was just one of the many steps, the many lessons that God would teach his people in the process of healing their souls from the effects of sin. This story is the first in several instances in Exodus that describes the the difficult nature of the wilderness journey and reveals the unbelief of God's people. It reveals their bitterness, their selfishness, their rebelliousness, their, their sinfulness. And each time this disease is exposed, it is followed by an experience of God's power. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he calls the wilderness Israel's teacher. They had to be taught and healed before they could enter the rest in the promised land. In the wilderness, God reveals to them their sin, their rebellion, and their utter need for Him to heal them of their heart condition. The wilderness is where the great physician does the work in the heart of His people. When God gives His people the statute at Marah to test them, He's giving the Israelites the prescription For the cure to their disease. The hearts of his people would be purified when in verse 26 you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Do what is right in his eyes. Give ear to his commandments. Keep all of his statutes. It's it's through these things that healing comes. Not because they are some great keepers of the law. They're not. But because living your life this way as described In verse 26, is the fruit of a heart that trusts the Lord. And that's where healing comes. A heart that trusts the Lord will be made whole. And he's testing his people. This is how you know that your heart is being made whole. This is how you know that you trust me. And as you do these things, I will heal you. These commands are not for the people's salvation. The Lord had already saved them. They were for their healing. And the same is true for every single one of us this morning. Such commands from the Lord is not for our salvation. The great cure for sin comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A free gift of grace when you believe. But you walk in the commands of the Lord, partnering with the great physician as he continues to heal, as he continues to sanctify, as he heals every hurt, every moral shortcoming, every selfish thought and deed that afflicts us as a result of sin. And if you're here 
and you're not a Christian this morning, the most loving thing someone can tell you is that you are infected by the disease of sin. And you will die separated from God without the cure. But the Lord who heals your soul has given his son, Jesus Christ, as the savior of the world. He is the remedy for everything that ails our sin-sick souls. And he died on the cross that you may be healed. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He is the Lord who heals our souls. Third, he is the Lord who heals instantaneously. The Lord showed Moses the log. Moses threw it in the water and it was made sweet immediately. He is able to heal in a moment our afflictions, whether it be physical or spiritual or emotional. And last, he is the Lord who also heals over time. Like God's people Israel, Jesus' church, all of us are living in the wilderness. We are living in the wilderness between Jesus' coming and Jesus is coming again. And we are on a really long and at times difficult pilgrimage that will take a lifetime. And healing comes degree by degree as the Lord works on us. And for many of us, there will be diseases, there will be afflictions, there will be sins, for all of us that will not be fully healed until the resurrection. But they will be healed because our God is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals us, and He is able. And as God gave me that, that picture while we were worshiping, it fits so perfectly with this, that all those sins, all those struggles, all those diseases that were made will be gone upon the resurrection and we will glorify Him and we will worship Him in glory, in perfection. Because God is able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for what your word reveals, Lord, about you. I thank you that in this instance, sometimes we can, we can narrow the reality of you as healer to just a, a physical reality. And Lord, as glorious as that is, as, as much as I long to see people be physically healed in a moment, as much as I long to see when I lay hands on people, afflictions be gone. Because you can do it. You do do it. And I've seen it. You are able. Like most things in your word, the truth of you as healer goes so far beyond that. It is so much more glorious than just that. 
Every single one of us are afflicted by the disease of sin. And every single one of us here in this moment, we can think of the offshoots of that in our own lives. God, I I need you to heal me here. Maybe it is physical. Father, maybe for some, there's just an emotional healing that needs to happen because of things that have happened in their past. For some, maybe there's an addiction that they need to be healed of. For some, maybe there's a struggle that they're facing. And they just don't trust you enough. All of these things are tied into the reality that you are healing our hearts, that you are making us whole. And so, Father, thank you for the picture of you as healer from your scriptures. Thank you that you truly are the healer of all our afflictions and all our diseases, not just the physical ones. And Lord, we trust in a moment that when we cry out to you and we need it, you will respond, you will heal us. And we also trust that you are the God that by degree, by degree, are making us whole. And one day we will stand before you perfect because you've healed us completely and we will praise you for all that you've done. And not individually, but as a church. And we will look to our left and our right and we will see people and we will know the ailments that afflicted them and we will praise you as we see brothers and sisters in Christ perfect beside us. And all the glory will be yours, Lord. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that you are doing it, you will do it, and you have done it. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.